Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? (laughs) Yeah, well, like I said, I'm all cozy. I'm down where I do my writing and I've got a wood stove with a roaring fire in it. So everything's nice and cozy. I love that. I'm feeling vicarious comfort from that somehow. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Welcome to Working Title. Yeah, we sure appreciate you taking the time time to do this. Um, the way we kind of start this off, usually, uh, like as Joseph said, as we're talking about vocation, is just simply to uh, pose the question, the first question this way. You know, you're at a social setting, the inevitable um, awkward greeting comes up, uh, someone introduces themselves, and then they ask the, the question, so, Brian, tell me, what is it that you do, and how would you respond to that? Um, well, I, I just tell them I'm a pastor. Uh, now, I've had moments where I've been tempted to say I'm an author, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? which is true enough. Come on, I've written seven books in the past 10 years. and That counts. So I am an author, but I also always realize that I'm trying to wiggle out of something when I do that. That an author's like, oh, wow. You know, people kind of think that's cool. Pastors, depending on who is asking the question, can be met with some disdain. So no, I'm, I just tell people I'm a pastor, and then we see where it goes. Um, now, now, when I walked the Camino de Santiago in 2016, Perry and I, my wife Perry and I, this is a 500-mile, 1,200-year-old ancient pilgrim journey that traditionally begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and goes all the way to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. Um, you know, you walk for 500 miles, took us 40 days carrying all of our stuff. Wow. And I never told anyone what I did. Um, <laughs> now, on, on the Camino, um, part of Camino etiquette is you don't ask people that. You can ask them their name, where they're from, how they heard about the Camino. But Camino etiquette really forbids you from asking people what they do. At least you shouldn't do that because that interjects class oh. into the Camino. And on the Camino, we're all just peregrinos. We're just pilgrims. Hmm. Uh, I did tell one person because I suspected that he too was a pastor. (laughs) (laughs) We'd walked for a few hours. He was an American and uh, my suspicion was right. His name is Ken Kovacs. He pastors a Presbyterian church in Washington, DC, and we've maintained something of a friendship, but I, but I knew, I do know what it's like to uh, be a bit hesitant. Sure. Yeah. And you, um, have had, if anyone's familiar with your work, you've had uh, uh, quite a quite a transition within that context of being a pastor. Yes. Um, and I was wondering, could you speak uh, briefly? Give us a give us a summary of of that transition. Well, just to get some of the statistics out there, uh, I'm 59 years old. I've been a pastor for 37 years. Wow. Um, of one church. Uh, Word of Life Church here in St. Joseph, Missouri. So do the math. I've been a pastor for 37 years of one single church. I started when I was 22. Um, The story goes like this. Um, 
When I was in high school, I had a dramatic encounter with Jesus that overnight transformed me from the high school Led Zeppelin freak into the <laughs> high school Jesus freak. And uh, this was this was news in our high school. It was kind of a big deal. Back then, everybody knew me as Fry. Nobody called me Pastor Brian. <laughs> they called me Fry, and that was my nickname. That's what everybody called me. And after a few weeks went by, they would say, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I would say, I can't either, but it's happened. And uh, by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs, which was uh, the Jesus Movement coffeehouse venue here in St. Joseph. And it was mostly a music venue. So we would host the, uh, the various artists in the Jesus music scene of that day. And that's where I got to know you know, Keith Green and Phil Kage and all of those people from uh, bringing them into our coffee house. But the coffee house began to take on the feeling of a church as well. And so I was doing teaching there and I was leading, you know, my peers to the Lord, baptizing them so that when when the catacombs became Word of Life Church in November of 1981, um, we, it wasn't so much that we were launching a church as we were recognizing that we had become something like a church. And so we just officially started meeting on Sunday mornings. So the way I tell it is I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I have been doing the work of, the, of a pastor since I was 17 years old. Now, I'm not saying that's a pattern to follow or anything like that, but it's just what happened. Hmm. And so – uh, I began in the Jesus movement, which, of course, had its, you know, it had its youthful naivete and its arrogance at times and its limitations. But still, I look back on, on it fondly as something that generally was a, a very pure and passionate movement, genuinely centered around Jesus. I mean, it's aptly named. It was, you know, the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement led me into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. Uh, then the charismatic movement, you know, over time, we're talking really about some decades going by here. Mm -hmm. But that sort of just leads me into a little bit of the prosperity gospel, religious right, all of that sort of stuff. It happened quite slowly over a long period of time until... I began to feel a growing dis-ease around the age 40, around the age of 40. And then by the time I was 45, I suddenly woke up as if an alarm clock were going on in my soul. And I, I realized, well, how did I get here? What happened? I mean, I didn't start out as this radical Jesus freak only to end up as a, you know, sort of a, Religious right, prosperity gospel light, um, endorser of assumed American values with a Jesus fish slapped on it. Right. And I thought, you know, something's gone awry. And I, I felt that the Christianity I knew uh, was unworthy of the Jesus that had captured my heart so long ago. So it was a crisis of faith in one sense, but not about Jesus, but about the Christianity that I had come to know. I just thought Jesus deserved something better. And so without really knowing what else to do, I began to backtrack. And I thought, well, I'm going to just back all the way up to the beginning of Christianity and see if I can understand what went wrong 
And so I started reading the church fathers. I was also reading some philosophy and, and literature, but really emphasizing uh, the early writings of Christianity. Uh, eventually, I had a breakthrough where uh, I began to discover what I call the good stuff. And for me, the moment occurred when in a bit of frustration, I prayed one day. I said, God, show me what to read. I mean, I was reading the church fathers and all of this sort of stuff, but I knew I needed something more contemporary. But I was just embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. I just didn't know it existed. I didn't know how to find it. In my, you know, the charismatic world I was in, I, I had exhausted all possibilities. Not so much reading going on. No, and, <laughs> and what reading was going on was, you know, not worth reading, actually. Sure. And so I prayed, and I said, God, show me what to read. This was 2004. And uh, my wife, just a, a few minutes later, walked in the room. She had no idea what I'd prayed. She had no idea. And she just walks up to me and hands me a book and says, here. I think you should read this. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is she hadn't read that book. And to make it even more strange, uh, neither one of us know exactly how that book got in our house. I mean, we just don't know. Holy smokes. We, we, we found it in our house. Wow. Neither one of us bought it. Neither one of us brought it to our home. Somehow it got there, and she came upon it, looked at it, said, mm, Brian might like this. What it was was Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. Yeah. I read that book. That's the good was, stuff. Oh, man. <laughs> it was like a door being kicked open in my mind. Mm. I devoured that book. And then for whatever, you know how, how one thing leads to another. You know, you read one author, and, and then because of that author, you find another one. Well, I went on a, let's say, let's say like a four-year, this is about right, three or four-year, probably four-year, binge reading uh episode you know how people will binge watch you know something on netflix <laughs> right imagine imagine four years of nightly binge reading like six hours a night holy smokes wow. uh, and never thinking of it as work never thinking of it as an assignment but rather i had struck gold and i couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough and who I discovered during that time, I mean, you know, you can, by the way, you can read a lot. If you read, you know, about six hours a night for four years, <laughs> yes. you, can, you can read, you can read most of it. <laughs> but, but, you know, I discovered N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann and Carl Barth and Stanley Hirewas and David Bentley Hart and Renee Girard and Miroslav Wolf and Eugene Peterson, who I kind of already knew of a little bit anyway, but, uh, but I read, what I would do is typically I would you know, discover this new author, and instead of just reading one book, I would say, okay, now I've got to read all of N.T. Wright, and <laughs> <Yeah>. I did. <laughs> Which is quite a library. You know, I started with those big books. I just started with, with – well, the first thing I read was The Challenge of Jesus, but then I thought, okay, no, I've got to read his corpus. <laughs> so I start reading uh, the New Testament, the people of God, and then Jesus and the victory of God, and then the resurrection of the Son of God. And I'm just reading everything. And to give of people course. some context, each one of those books yeah. is like 1,200 pages. Yeah, yeah, they're enormous. <laughs> <laughs> and but, uh, but this, of course, changes a pastor, this kind of reading. Um, I, was, I was thrilling at what I was finding. Absolutely, I was being thrilled by it. But it's changing me, you know, as one would suspect. And by changing me, it's changing my preaching. 
I've really never been the kind of person that can hold back much from preaching. I've lived a preaching life, mm. and I kind of don't even know what it's like to go through life not constantly preparing sermons. I mean, and, and you count your sermons. So what? What's your number as of yesterday? Uh, three thousand four hundred and ten. <laughs> wow. And uh, and I'm already working on three thousand four hundred and eleven. So I love there it. you go. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I have I have about four million words of sermon notes. That's an unbelievable. So yeah. so so I'm always doing this. You know, this is how I just I kind of just live my life like this. Well, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or out of the abundance of what a preacher's reading, he's going to preach. And so my preaching is changing. On the one hand, I'm thrilled. Uh, but and I, I did have some suspicion that there was the possibility that not everyone in the congregation would be as thrilled as I was. Uh, yet I was somewhat naive. I didn't realize how drastically some people would react in opposition to to what I called my new eyes. I said, it's like I'm born again again. And I'm reading the Bible with new eyes. Mm. And we went we went through a period of time. From really about 2006 to, let's say, 2014, well, most of it was done before then, but let's say from 2006 to 2010 or 11, where we lost over 1,000 people. Wow. And that was very painful. Um, these were people that, they weren't just nameless entities these were friends. Many of them were people that I had known for decades. Maybe I had baptized them. Maybe I'd married them. Maybe I'd baptized their children, etc. And uh, they were leaving. Now, if, if you lose over a thousand members and you live in a town of 70,000 people, what does that mean? It means when you go to the grocery store, you see them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you can see them. In all ten aisles, if you, <laughs> if you coordinate it just right, and it's awkward and painful and difficult. And so my wife and I were both on this journey together. This what we came to describe as the water to wine journey, because that's what it was like for us. Um, we were on it together, and it was the strangest time of our lives because we were experiencing two powerful emotions simultaneously on the one hand we were experiencing a joy an elation that we were discovering the kind of christianity that whether we knew it or not we'd all along been looking for and the water was turning to wine and that was joyful and yet being misunderstood and even maligned because of that and people leaving was bringing us great pain so we were experiencing joy and pain simultaneously. And I, if I look back, if I'm honest, I'll say there were uh, some seasons where the pain outweighed the joy. It didn't change what we were doing, but it's just, you know, it put deep wounds into our soul. Uh, and is it similar say, to is it similar to what Peterson calls the badlands for him and Jan? Yeah, for for your marriage. In fact, I, mean, in fact, I adopted that phrase, and I I began to pray it a lot. I began to say, "Oh God, lead us out of the badlands into resurrection country." Did you and, and your wife I have took that? 
Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, did you and your wife have conversations that that where you talked about, does this mean where we have to leave the church? Was that ever an option? Um, we always knew we could do that. Um, and we, we, if we did, it was more of a fantasy. <laughs> yeah. You know, we would, we would do that as a fantasy, uh, to gain some relief. But I think both of us ultimately were very committed now, whether it's right or wrong. And I think probably it's mostly right, but it comes at a price. Um, Word of Life Church really is to Perry and I, and we we say this, we say this, you know, we say this to one another. It's like our fourth child. We have three sons; they're all grown now, and uh, and Word of Life was like our fourth child. I mean, we birthed it, we raised it, we nurtured it, we gave our life to it, mm. and just to walk away felt like that would have been cowardly and irresponsible. Um, because, see, I was in a position where I, at least I could try to bring the church with me. Yeah. Uh, by that, I mean I wasn't going to be fired. Yeah. There, there really wasn't an apparatus for the congregation to do that. They just didn't like you know, a new direction. And there wasn't a bishop that was going to come in and um, you know take me out. So I at least had the opportunity to try, and I thought it's worth trying. And as I look, you know, it was totally worth it. I mean, today I would describe Word of Life Church as half the size and 10 times better. I really yeah. believe that. And I'm happy as I can be. Uh, the, the transition probably took us 10 years, probably from 2004 to 2014. And it took an additional two years for Perry and I to really heal. Hmm. Um, and, it, and, and both of us will tell you that that was really the result of taking our first sabbatical ever in the fall of 2016 and walking the Camino de Santiago that I've already mentioned. Yeah. That long 40-day, 500-mile walk across northern Spain healed our souls. And we came back at peace. We came back whole. We came back ready to uh, continue the journey. And today, uh, I've never felt better about what Word of Life Church is and where it's at than ever. Um people might be curious to know, okay, what were the big issues? Well, there were several issues, but the biggest issue was my disengagement with the religious right. Yeah. And my challenging of, you know, is, is waging war compatible with Christian ethics and following Jesus, those sorts of things, because those are very sacred in America's minds. That's what caused us to lose, uh, more people than any other issue. There, there are some, you know, becoming less demonstratively charismatic and uh, maybe less, as I would call it, ticket to heaven oriented, uh, less sensational, easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. Pulling away from that, maybe uh, that, that may have disappointed some people, but it was really the religious right issues that caused the largest number of people to leave. And yet we had this phenomenon that I think is worth noting. We had it numerous times, many times, and that would be people my age, my peers, people in their fifties, leaving the church and their adult children staying and saying, mom and dad, you can do what you want, but we think you're crazy. This is what's keeping us in Christianity. Mm -hmm. If we can't find a church like this, we're not in Christianity. And, uh, I thought when that was happening, that, that happened over and over, I thought, well, that's 
ultimately, I think that's a good sign. Uh, that's an indication that we're doing something right. On the other hand, I found out that these young people either A, don't have any money, or B, don't like to give it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so, so me. Maintaining our financial viability was a challenge during all that time. But sure. Trust, so anyway, that, that, trust that's me, kind we of get a summary that. of what we went through. Yeah. So during that transition period, you know, that four or five years or so mm-hmm. that you call that transition, you know. Yeah, more like, more like 10 years. I mean, it depends on what you mean, but, but it was really intense for four or five years. Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, transition like that doesn't occur like a light switch. I mean, so... So I'm sure no. that there was these moments of you doing some internal, you and your wife wrestling, you know, do I really think this type thing? Um, talk about your sermons during that time. Like, were you, a lot of people look to a pastor and, and you see this combination. Some people want to see, um, you know, wisdom and, and certitude and things like that. But then there's this layer of vulnerability uh, that, that comes into play too of, I'm not sure I've, I think this um, anymore. So I'm sure you didn't go from just one Sunday preaching, you know, war is fine, and then the next Sunday, uh, the opposite of that. I'm sure there was, during that transition, Did you, was were you vulnerable? Were you wrestling out loud, in a sense, through that time? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I never made any secret that I was going through a radical uh, transition, Um I talked about it, though, in positive terms. Like, look what I'm discovering. I'm being born again again. I've got new eyes. We're finding, uh, you know, what we've been looking for all of our lives. I, I would talk like that. Um, but um, so, so it was no secret. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like I was trying to smuggle something in. Or, right. or, in fact, I remember clearly in 2004 on a Sunday morning standing up and telling – our congregation, I said, I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement. And I said, by packing my bags, I mean, I'm taking some things with me. I'm taking some things that I, I believe are worth uh, keeping and cherishing, and maintaining. But as but as far as being identified with this movement, I'm moving on. Now, I did it in such a way with enough rhetorical skill that the congregation applauded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until I actually did it. <laughs> Were you nervous that Sunday heading in? Uh, you know, probably not. I, I During that time, I would hurt. I would feel pain when people left. But preaching has always been the moment when I'm the most courageous. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I fear no man <laughs> when I stand behind the pulpit, yeah. which is also why I'm very careful to be thoroughly prepared. And so I'm not cavalier in how I approach preaching. I think it through. I work at it. I have a system. I have how I write my sermons. And if I know I'm going to be touching on subjects that could be viewed as controversial, then I am very careful in my preparation about what I say, and I discipline myself not to depart from that, Yeah. not to in the moment wing it. Um, but in so doing, but I do say things and I am bold and courageous and challenge and provoke. Um, I mean, I don't really have a lot of regrets. Uh, is it if, because if ha- I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No. Well, what I was going to say was if I had to do it again, cause like people ask me this a lot, you know, if you had to do it again, what would you do differently? And I think, wow, 
you know, I, there's there's a couple of things I can think of, and I'll mention that in a moment. But all in all, I don't think I could have done much better. And if I had to do it over again, I don't know that I would do any better. I might not make some of the same mistakes, but who knows? I might make more mistakes. Right. Uh, the, the one mistake that kind of stands out was around the year 2006. If I go back and look at my sermon notes, I can tell a mistake I made. It was innocent. Uh, Maybe it was inevitable, but still it was a mistake, and that was I was preaching a little too close to what I was learning and discovering. And a, a wise pastor will, okay, own something for a while, uh, let it settle in, let it become your own, rather than, you know, you read something from Karl Barth two weeks ago and now you're preaching on it. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> What I said, there was nothing wrong with what I said. The problem was, is if I'd waited longer, I could have communicated it better in a way that was more pastoral. Uh, I was just so excited, I couldn't hardly hold back, but I still regard that as a mistake. Well, if you've, if you've preached 3,500 sermons, and there's one <laughs> thing that far ago that I think you're doing good. I... Well, I mean, it was more than one sermon, but it was that, <laughs> it was that stress, that period of time where I think I was... Uh, and what it meant was is because I think part of what I do is I graze in the fields of academic theology. I mean, I came to find out, you know, midway through life that I had an aptitude for this, that that reading hardcore academic theology wasn't intimidating to me. I could read it and digest it. Um, and, and, then, and then I think what I do well is then be able to turn that into some kind of milk that I can give to, you know, housewives and truck drivers and bankers on Sunday morning. That during that period, though, of 2006, where maybe I wasn't doing as good a job with that because I was so excited, I hadn't I hadn't digested it into, into palatable milk yet. I was giving them too much uh, maybe direct academic theology, which maybe is not um accessible for the average layperson. Yeah, it's 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 hard but to I learned my lesson. <laughs> it's it's hard to not discover something and want to share it, especially when you're in that rhythm of discovery and sharing every single week preparation. Which, which is why you must have, I think, it's essential that a pastor doing something similar to what I've described, that they have a cadre of friends that mm. they can talk to. And the two primary graces during that season of my life, that long transition, was, number one, that my wife was on the same journey with me, that there was never any tension between us on this. We, oh, were, both, we were both together. And then the other thing, and I just, I do, I do, I just see this as, as, a, as a gift from God, is that right as I began that journey, I made two new friends that— Today I describe as my two very closest friends, and it's uh, Joe Beach, pastor of Amazing Grace Church in Denver, and Brad Jerzak, who's now, I guess you'd best describe him as an Orthodox theologian mm-hmm. in Vancouver or Abbotsford, British Columbia. And the three of us communicated, I would say, and, and, and it remains the same to this day, we communicate more days than we don't. Yeah. And so we're texting, emailing. I've heard from both of these guys today. 
That's so it's cool. very natural. And and we sort of have a rule and it's we've never made it formal, but we and I know we all agree to it that when one of us says you've got to read this book, then by golly, we've <laughs> got to drop everything and read that book. Yeah. And so we kind of journeyed together. The reason I say that it's a great grace is that when I was feeling attacked or wounded and they too, because they also were going through this and that, that when one of us was under attack or hurt or wounded, the other two would come and help carry, help console, help heal. Uh, I, I don't think I could have made it without that kind of companionship. Yeah. So, so why, why church uh, for you? Because without, naming specific names or talking about anyone else's particular situation, a lot of people who have gone through similar transitions have left the church and used, whether it's social media, conferences, books only as their, as their platform. But, but you're still, you're still dealing with real people with real problems. You're going through this and people in your congregation are getting cancer some of their kids are mm-hmm. addicted mm-hmm. to drugs or whatever the situation is so why why church for you because i in all sincerity and all honesty ultimately don't know what it means to follow jesus apart from the church that's great i think if you had suggested this to any apostle any of the early Christian leaders said, you know, I'm kind of disappointed in the church. I've had some pains. It doesn't, you know, it seems to be compromised. And sometimes when the leaders are jerks. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm not going to be a part of the church. I think they would just look at you (laughs) and say, what? I, I, I hear words coming out of your mouth, but I have no idea what they mean. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see it as possible. Now, now, I don't know what kind of listeners we have and what they're going to think about this. And I don't mean this maybe as uh, uncaring as it sounds. But look, if people have suffered real abuse, so I'm talking about sexual abuse, and those, then, then all things are forgiven and all things are understood and you've got to do what you've got to do. Uh, but if we're just talking about the fact that you discovered that the church is full of hypocrites and <laughs> it, <laughs> right. it's, it's, you know, and but so, but you still want Jesus. We say, I want Jesus, but I'm done with the church. I see that as a highly selfish move because even though in theory, you as an individual may be able to somehow believe in Jesus, yeah. I think you can follow him, but at least you can say you believe in Jesus uh, without the church. Uh, you will not transmit that faith. It's very unlikely that you will transmit that faith to your children. And I will tell you that there is zero chance that your grandchildren are going to believe in Jesus. What will happen is your faith in Jesus will be a, a hobby that your children and grandchildren will look upon either benignly or with kind of a, you know, with a smile or or maybe with a sadness. You know, mm-hmm. grandma, grandpa, they believe in Jesus. Well, isn't that cute? Yeah. It is through the church we pass on the faith from generation to generation. And so since this is more than a hobby to me, since I'm more, you know, you could, you could have a hobby. You can say, oh, okay, I'm interested in music. And you sit around listening to music by yourself. Or I'm into, you know, mushroom hunting. And you go out and you find all kinds of mushrooms, you know. This is not that for me. Uh, I deeply 
care that my children, and I have three grown sons who are married, uh, follow Jesus, and, and they are, by the way. And I have now seven grandchildren. Wow. All eight and under. So eight years ago, I had zero grandchildren. Now I have seven. That's amazing. <laughs> it was a, I called it a tsunami of grandchildren. <laughs> and they they live. That's my two oldest sons are married. They live across the street from each other at the end of a cul-de-sac. And so those between them, they have seven children. The oldest has four children. The middle son has three children. And they're growing up as a like a clan. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. And, and they live five minutes from me. So I see them more days than I don't. And I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell a moment because you guys are pastors. So, you know, I preach on Sundays, I get done preaching. I go out to the foyer, I shake hands, talk with people, pray, do all that sort of stuff that I do. And then finally, when that, you know, has come to an end, I go back into the sanctuary because I'm going to retrieve my Bible and my sermon notes and all of that. And it happened last Sunday. It happens nearly every Sunday. So like maybe a half an hour has gone by. And I walk back into the sanctuary and almost always one or two or six or seven of my grandchildren will come up to me, come running, papa, and hug me and we'll laugh and whatever. But the point is they're there. Right. And they're there a half an hour after church is over. Because their parents are hanging out in the sanctuary, talking to their friends, and it's 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 healthy, it's natural, it's, and and every time that happens, I promise you, there's not a moment there is there's a, a single time that I walk into that sanctuary at the end of a Sunday morning gathering, and I'm hugged by my grandchildren who are laughing and happy to be there that I don't recognize that as maybe the greatest blessing in my life. Yeah, that. That at this point I can say the faith is being successfully passed on to my grandchildren because they love church, that's and they and they love their pastor grandpa. Yeah, that's great. I think that matter all the that kind of stuff matters. So, and that moment that moment is not separate from what the liturgy was. That is in and of itself the encapsulation of what church is. Those yep. those relationships and that that what's happening in the foyer. It's all one thing. That community. It's all one thing, right? Exactly. And a lot of times, yes. the people that have uh, made the decision, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like church. They say that they have their community, their social circle, but it's basically just a group of people that look and think exactly like them. Yeah. And so, one of the most look, beautiful things look. about the church is the eclectic, multi generational. You know, where mm -hmm. going to a, the single table is is a you know a seventy year old retired lawyer and a fourteen year old skater punk or whatever. <laughs> No, that's Word of Life Church. I see it every Sunday. So, look, I love hanging out with my friends, sharing a meal and talking about Jesus. That's one of my favorite things to do in life. I love it when, you know, sometimes Brad and Joe and I and our families, sometimes we get together somehow, somewhere, and we hang out, and we have food and drink, and talk Jesus and theology. I love that. It's not church. It's a good thing. We should do that. I encourage people to have friends and get together and share a meal and talk about Jesus. Just don't call it church. When people say, I do that. I say, well, do people get baptized? You ever <laughs> baptize people? No. Uh, is it truly a public gathering where anybody that once can show up? Well, no, not really. Church is the place where you hang out with people that if not for church, you would never hang out with. Right? That's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk to people. I shake hands. I hug. I pray. 
with people. I love people. I know people that if not for church, just, you know, given just let's just be honest, I probably wouldn't hang out with them because we don't have anything else in common. Right. Uh, you know, maybe they're they're not, you know, erudite readers of sophisticated theology, <laughs> whatever. You know, maybe they're separated in age from me by decades. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, their politics are just so vastly different than mine that that would be a minefield. And yet I'm hugging them and praying with them every Sunday at church and loving them and, and knowing them and learning what matters to them and the struggles they're going through. That's church. Yeah. Church is not just hanging out with friends, which is a good thing. Hanging out with friends is a good thing. But it kind of reminds me of that, that little parable or whatever. I don't know if it's a parable, but Jesus, when he says, you know, when you, when you have a feast, don't just invite your friends. Yeah. You know, invite invite those that are the outcast, the, the lame. And, and, and that doesn't have to be just physically. You know, I mean, there, there are people that are just socially, they're crippled. And they're not the cool people. And they don't have tons of people that are wanting to hang out with them. Church is for them. I, I, I can't tell you how many people that are in our church that this is their community. This is where they they find love and warmth and acceptance and friendship. And if it weren't for the church, I have no idea how they would find that. Yeah. So so that yeah, church church matters. It doesn't it doesn't just matter. It's it is the expression of how I follow Jesus. If there isn't a church for me to follow Jesus with, then it seems to me to be really either selfless, selfish, or pointless. Mm-hmm. Um, so the church is a non-negotiable with me, with the caveat if I'm talking to someone who has suffered genuine genuine right you know psychological sexual cult-like abuse well then all things are understood and forgiven and you do what you got to do um unfortunately i do hear too many stories of people claiming they were abused in church and when you hear the story it's like well you just didn't get your way that's not exactly abuse (laughs) you just didn't get your way that's a little (laughs) bit different right well so um uh, Eugene Peterson, on his endorsement of your farewell, book, Farewell to Mars, he, he called you a prophet. And I know that's not something that you a lot of times would want to call yourself. But yeah. he, if, if Eugene Peterson called you that, then you get to be you that. get to yeah. be that. Yeah. <laughs> so that being said, the message of the prophet is usually is, is a tough one to give. And, and you know, you've already alluded to, to that. But my question is, in the midst of all of that, talk to us for a little bit about joy. Where do you find joy in life um you know i'm going to be honest for a while i didn't find much joy i do today i do today i think i had to go through that i i think you have to be willing to spend some time uh in shield if that's what it takes Mm. um I, i i don't think we should obsess over always having joy you know, Jesus says, look, woe to you that laugh now, for you shall weep. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I mean, there's times when uh, fidelity to Christ leads us into the valley of Baca, the valley of tears. And I don't believe we stay there. And I'm not there. I can honestly say that. Where do I find joy? Today? I find it with my friends. I find it in music. I find it with my wife. I find it 
in in sensing that there is hope for the church. Uh, I don't have a overly romantic notion of the church. I because there's never been a golden age for the church. Yeah. Uh, really, there hasn't. There, I mean. The Book of Acts was not a golden age. The first century was not a golden age. You're dealing with all of these heresies and all of this sort. There has never been a golden age of the church, and yet it still survives. It passes on the faith. It functions. And so um, Perry would ask me oftentimes during that very difficult journey through the darkness, through the transition, she would say to me, are you happy? I would say, I try not to ask myself that question. Yeah. Um, I think happiness is better uh, as a surprise and understanding that it can be fickle, that it can come suddenly and leave just as quick. So uh, in all honesty, though, to, I'm, I'm in really, I think, I think I would say here I am 59. I think this is the most joyful period of my life. Um, but it wasn't that way five, six years ago. It was, it was hard. It was a painful time. I knew it was good. There wasn't, I wasn't doubting whether it was correct or right. It was just, it just hurt. Yeah. It was painful. Uh, maybe I can give an analogy. I just thought of this. Um, when I walked the Camino, um, I walked for 200 miles without any blisters. <laughs> And then I got blisters, and I walked another 200 miles with blisters, and it was no fun. Uh, the the fun meter kind of <laughs> dipped pretty close to zero at the end of some of those days. For sure. Uh, but I just kept going. I never thought about quitting, and I didn't even – I mean, I, I felt the pain. I didn't like the pain. I mean, who does? And yet I thought I, I was I was content to say if this is what this is going to be, then so be it. Um, and then and then they went away and I, I finished the Camino pain free. And so that was kind of that's kind of like what my life and ministry has been. I walked a good long while without really a lot of pain. Then I walked through a very painful period with blisters on my soul. Uh, but then they went away. And even when I was going through it, I thought, well, you know. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know, <laughs> hello, grief. I'm becoming acquainted with you, like Jesus did. Um, now, I don't want to go all enneagram on you, uh, because you know, as they say, two enneagram enthusiasts walked into a Bible study. There were no survivors. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> but, but I, I, I do fall under the type that can uh, make art out of pain. As Bob Dylan says in one of his songs, uh, behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. So, um, does that make you me, a four? That, yes, it does. I wasn't going to, yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, I find joy in art, in music, literature. I'm reading more novels than I've ever read in my life. I try to be a snob about it <laughs> in that I try to read really good stuff, but I probably read at least as many novels now as I do you know, Christian work. And well, I don't want to say crit because novels can be very Christian. I'll say I, I read at least as many novels as I read nonfiction. Yeah. Do you feel just and, as spiritual when you're, when you're hiking or reading novels? I mean, uh, you know, ab absolutely. I mean, yes, it's, in fact, I've really tried to, to 
tell some pastors that I've met or sometimes when I speak in seminaries, I urge them to uh, read more novels. Yeah. I spoke at Southeastern University last year, and what was they gave me the name of my talk because the professor that was having me in knew me. And Is it Robbie Waddell? The, yeah, Robbie Waddell. We both graduated was, from Southeastern, so we oh, know. I really had yeah. no idea. <laughs> sure coincidence. Well, I was there, and I spoke on, and he gave me the title uh, from something he'd read that I'd written, and it was called, uh, let me think here, Dylan Dostoevsky and Terrence Malick. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. And so I basically just spoke on on how language of Bob Dylan, the uh, novels of Fyodor Dostoevsky, and the films of Terrence Malick have helped inform and shape and enrich my faith. Yeah. That was a fun. I, I love doing things like that. That was a fun lecture to give. Yeah. So we. Uh... We can go maybe 10, 10 15 more minutes um, if that's sure. okay. And sure. we'll just kind of ask you a couple uh, maybe random questions that, that we'd be interested in. Um, one of the things I'm always interested in with, with people is, I don't, I'm not sure why, but what, what are your mornings look like? I think the way that you start oh. your day is very important. I, well, okay, a couple of things. Uh, one of you has four children. One of you has a child. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah one. Uh, the one that has one says, I cannot conceive a fortune. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Correct. Uh, well, so, so the first thing I want to add is, uh, uh, you know, our, our children have long since flown the coop. My youngest is 20. Yeah, you'll, you'll never know if I get it wrong. I think he's 26. <laughs> that's, I think <laughs> that sounds wonderful. right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for the confirmation. So, so several things before I tell you what my morning looks like. I have no children here at home, little children, uh, and I am I, I have the liberty of pretty much forming my own schedule, more or less. I'm not a terribly early riser, seven or eight, you know, I like to go to bed midnight, you know, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. get up seven or eight. Uh, I fix breakfast, and then I, I usually try to read scripture for about a half an hour, and I have a, I have my... Bible reading schedule that I've followed for forever. I try to read scripture for about a half an hour, which is kind of very relaxed. Cup of coffee. Uh, it's very enjoyable. This is not looking for sermons. Uh, this is not sermon preparation. This is just keeping my life immersed in the text so that scriptural text becomes the milieu, the ocean that I swim in. And I'm just constantly saturated by that kind of language. Then after about a half an hour of scripture reading, I go into my morning prayer time, which is what I teach in my prayer school. It's a morning liturgy of prayer that takes around 30 minutes to pray through, depending on, you know, on a few factors. But pretty consistently, it's right at 30 minutes. And um, I'll arrange my schedule so that those things are done before I have to do anything. Today, I began... Today I finished reading postcards from Babylon for an audiobook, and we didn't start that till ten. Uh, tomorrow everything will start a little earlier because I'll we'll be having our staff meeting at nine a.m. So I'll get all that done before nine. But that's what my morning looks like. It's unhurried. It's relaxed. It's centered on scripture and prayer, which <laughs> I guess isn't novel, but that's you know that's that's what it looks like. Sure. Uh, I travel enough that that can get challenged. 
when you're, you know, I like travel. Travel doesn't bother me too much. I seem to adapt well to it. The only problem is, is that your morning schedule is easily disrupted. Um, but but then you do what you can. I'm, I'm pretty fanatical about having this morning liturgy of prayer, even if it's not in the morning, which the only time that would happen is when I'm traveling. Sometimes you're you know, schedule gets interrupted so much that you have to re- radically rearrange things. But that's what morning looks like. Okay. And I and then and then we're as later morning. If I don't have meetings, which most of the time I don't, Tuesdays I do, and uh, that's when I give. That's that's an important time for me for thinking, writing, whether it's writing books or writing sermons. You know, uh, that late morning is my most creative time, not early in the morning, not late. When I'm writing books or even sermons, really, I I don't write into the evening, evening for reading and learning, that sort of thing. But not for me for being too creative, although poetry will come to me in the evening. Mm. I don't know if you've read my books. I I sprinkle my books with my poems because uh, I have enough poems that I could put out a poetry book and nobody would read that. <laughs> so I, so I'm crafty and I, I just drop you force them into it on my us. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> That's right. How much time do you spend on a sermon per week? Would you say? Um, one day. Let's uh, let's say this. Let's say that um, I view the writing of a sermon as a full day's work. Mm-hmm. A, a well-written sermon is a day's work. Um, I worked a little bit and, and I typically write them real close to when I, I, if, if I just can do exactly what I like, I prefer to write the Sunday sermon on Saturday. That's not procrastination. That's, I just like working that close. Yeah. Um, but, but I've already come up with, you know, with a title and a text and kind of a vague notion of what I might want to do this next Sunday. I've already worked on that today. And so there'll be, you know, if I'm going to read something in preparation um, or if I'm going to just kind of come up with a basic idea, maybe maybe jot down some thoughts. I'll do that wherever throughout the week. What takes a whole day is the actual crafting of the sermon. Uh, the idea can come very quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having the idea is not the same as delivering it well. And that takes some time. Now, I can do it much quicker than I could in my 20s. I've just had enough experience. I've just done this enough. I kind of know how to do it. Um, Sermons consist of maybe three things. Points, illustrations, and stories. Stories are far and away without rival the most powerful part of your sermon. Points might just be what you keep in your head to move along, and these are the way markers I want to hit. But I never say it like that. I try to deliver my sermons more artistically. In fact, I recognize I, I regard the sermon as an art form. Yes, lectures don't have to be uh, artistic. They're they're just but lectures are pretty much reserved for either those that are very very interested in what you have to say or have to listen to what you have to say. <laughs> uh, Sermons, on the other hand, are an art form designed to capture the attention of the marginally interested. I mean, they might not be very interested at all, but if you do it well enough, you will surprise them and they'll find themselves being interested. The key to that is the use of story, keeping in mind that, first of all, the gospel is a story. The gospel is not a formula. It's not a Roman's road. It's not four steps. It's not, you know, 
four laws or three steps. The gospel is the story of Jesus in its most succinct form. It's death, burial, and resurrection. The larger form is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The director's cut edition runs from Genesis to Revelation, but it's a story. And what are human beings? Human beings are the storytelling creatures. We are hurled to existence, phenomenon of being. And what we do is we make a story out of it. And that's how we feel at home in this universe is because we find ourselves at home in a story. Nihilism is the attempt to do life without a story, to say, really, there is no story, which I, I'm, I don't know that people can bear that. I don't think many can. Um, I think Nietzsche tried, and I think it was contributed to his madness. I, I think right. it's just untenable. So I, in preaching, I employ story because human beings are programmed. Program, that's not the right word. Human beings uh, innately have a deep capacity to love story. And the story well told will always capture its audience, even if it's a story they've already heard, even if it's a story they know good and well how it ends. If you tell it well, they'll say, I want to hear it again, and they'll listen to it again. Now, for the preacher, there are three sources of stories. There are Bible stories, which are vast. You know, I have no idea how many stories are in the Bible because there's stories within stories within stories. Mm -hmm. There's so many. Uh, there's Bible stories. There's your stories, which are limited. You only have so many of your stories, and you can only tell your own stories so many times. And Can't forget that it. you've told them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the third source is just all the other stories in the world. Um, I try to make sure there's some component of story in every sermon I preach because I know that's what people will remember, and that's what they love, and it's how they really um, incorporate it into their life. Again, I'm not talking about seminary students. I'm talking about you know people coming up and showing up and sitting in our pews and our chairs in our church on Sunday morning. Uh, you can form them. You can disciple them. You can inspire them. Um through through the use of stories, so that's that's a big thing with me. Uh, I'm surprised at how many times people think I preached a great sermon when all I really did was tell one or two of the stories in the Bible in a creative, contemporary way. <laughs> right, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Hey, one of the things that we like to do uh, towards the end is just ask everyone, give us one recommendation of yours of any kind, something that we need to read or watch, anything like that. Uh, well, just a couple of things. Two years ago, I read a book that still is resonating in me. It's written by Alan Kreider, a Anabaptist patristic scholar who passed away shortly after completing the book. I'm so glad he completed it, called uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the, in, in the Roman Empire. So Alan Kreider... Uh, the Patient Ferment of the Early Church, a beautiful book. Hmm. Um, and then I just I just completed a novel. Um, I'm trying to – it's not sitting around here because I can't remember the guy's name. Edward – it's a Russian name. You'd think I would know it by now. But it's Loris. That's the English translation. It's a new – relatively new. I think it was published in 2015 in English, maybe written in 2012 in Russian. Uh, 
Laurus, A-L-U-R-U-S. I just finished it Sunday night or Saturday night for the second time. I don't read a lot of books twice. I read that one twice. Wow. It's it's set. It starts in 1440. You follow the life of a man that lives 80 years, who lives several lives. Uh, as a, You see his life as an adolescent, his life as a healer, his life as a pilgrim, his life as a monk. And it's beautiful. It's rich. It's uh, spiritual. I really recommend it. And, and enjoyable. You, people will just enjoy it, but then they will benefit from it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and then two quick things just to, to wrap it up. One, uh, is there something you could surprise us with? I mean, we know, you know, Bob, we got Bob Dylan, Dostoevsky, all of these things, but, but do you have a guilty pleasure that a lot of people wouldn't know that is an interest? Oh, my life's an open book, man. People that know me know me. I don't know if there's anything. Let me see. You probably know I'm a huge, I'm a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan and have been oh. all of my life. And I'm not even saying that's noble. I think they'll look back maybe <laughs> on me on some day and say, you know, he preached all this peace and nonviolence, but he did love his gladiatorial blood. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're heartbroken this year. <laughs> if, if I do need to defend myself, and this is my only defense, and it might not be adequate, it's it captured my heart as a child. And when you fall in love with something as a child, you know, if I had to, I could make myself not watch NFL football. I could not make myself not love it. Yeah. <laughs> I deeply love it. And so I'll, I'll say, yeah, I like all kinds of sports, but NFL football is in a different category. What about like the Royals? I, I, well, I, well, I like the Royals. Yeah. You know, I could, I could say, do I love the Royals? <laughs> but I'm, 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 I'm like people in Kansas City. The Royals won the World Series in 2014. That's great. Now let's talk about the Chiefs because yeah. this yeah. is a football town. <laughs> right. It really is a football town. So, hmm. and now that Patrick Mahomes is here, we're all giddy, and we've only waited for him for fifty years. That's right. <laughs> Un- unbelievable. Well, the yeah. very last thing that we finish every every podcast with is is tell us either the hardest time you've ever laughed or the last time you laughed really hard. It can be grandkids, it can be a <laughs> high school story, a church laugh, anything. Oh, this is an embarrassing story, <laughs> but I can I can probably only I, I I have laughed at times telling the story so hard that <laughs> I could hardly finish it. <laughs> I, I think I can tell it without laughing because maybe the, the distance of phone and all of that. It's a true story. It's an embarrassing story. It's absurd and ridiculous, but here it goes. We're ready. I was in I was in India, and I've been to India fourteen times, and. Um, the interesting part of this story, this isn't the funny part, is in back-to-back days. On one day, I was in a village meeting with village elders that lived in fast-reach huts in a world that has probably hardly changed over the last thousand years. The very next day, and I didn't know this was going to happen, I was asked to come and provide counsel to the chief justice of the Indian Supreme Court. Wow. And so back-to-back days, and I think you know, it was running the entire – social spectrum of India from that through dirt floor hut to a meeting with the chief justice of the Indian Supreme court, uh, which I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. He, he had a son who felt called to the ministry and this was uh, disturbing to him. You have to understand that the primary relationship in India is father and son. And he was just committed to his son going into law, becoming a lawyer 
a judge like he had done, and now his son, you know, felt called to go into the ministry. He knew about me, and he knew that I that my father was a judge, and so he thought that maybe I could help him, and I think maybe I did help him. But that's not the funny story. That's the nice story. The funny <laughs> story is, um, I'm in India. I'm traveling out to this village. I'm meeting with some people, and it's a, it's a rather choosing my word correctly. It's just a rather primitive uh, setting. Um, I'm, you know, part of, I mean, India is a 12 hour time zone change for me. So everything's backwards. Everything's, you know, your biological clock, everything's off. Mm -hmm. And I'm in India. I've driven, I've ridden in a car for about a half an hour. Well, was longer than that. Maybe like an hour to get to this place. We get there and we come in. We're going to have a meal and oh, my stomach. I always I feel like oh man, I I got to find a bathroom. And uh, you know it's it's of the more serious variety. And uh, so I, I you know I'm I'm asking you know where's the toilet? And so there there there's language barriers. You know that's also an issue. Here. And. Um, the translator didn't go with me, and this woman is leading me back to where the toilet is, and and I'm kind of looking around because I need some paper, <laughs> and she hands me she hands me some flowers, like this bouquet of flowers. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, it's India, you know, I don't know, things are different here, so, so she hands me this bouquet of flowers, and I go in the toilet, and and. Uh, that's that. You know? <laughs> I come back, and the lady is asking the interpreter, "What happened to your flowers?" <laughs> <laughs> the flowers were a gift, not a utility. But I had missed. <laughs> and I just love you. What are you gonna say? I just looked at her and I said, "Uh." I lost them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's. I still can't tell the story without laughing. I lost them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no good answer. That's bad. Oh, <laughs> that is, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for. <laughs> for I will laugh right. at that for the next three days. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate your time and. Thanks so much, and I, you've meant a lot to me just in your writings and sermons and podcasts and such an inspiration to me to stick with it, with ministry and with sticking with church and all this sort of thing. So thank you so much for who you are and your gifts. Well, thank you, and blessings to you. Yeah, yeah. you as well. Yeah, thank you. All righty. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Blessings. Bye.